here at 11FS headquarters in London WeWork for episode 28 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you Mark Zuckerberg studies the benefits of decentralization for Facebook, Visa drops crypto debit cards in Europe, and we bring you a fantastic interview. Now, on with the news. Hey, Colin, good to have you back. How is the GSAS? Uh, it's good to be back, although I don't know how good. It's quite cold here. Uh, well, you know, it's not quite France. It's not quite a field, but it's nice to see you in person. There are no fields here. That is disappointing. <laughs> there are no fields, but uh, I do have to let listeners know that today's uh, episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy using smart contracts. Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 with over 160 of the world's largest banks and technology partners. It's ready to build on today and the financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. You can transform your business ecosystem with a platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on. Go to Corda.net to learn more. Big big bit of news this week uh colin i think the first one we're going to get to before we get to the um <coughs> to some of the ripple stuff which i can feel you itching itching to get to i actually think the number one story this week was mark zuckerberg deciding to fix facebook by studying decentralization so every year mark zuckerberg uh, has a challenge he sets himself the things he's going to study and learn and in 2016 it was ai um in 2017 he was gonna go around the us and meet real people i, th I think he figured out it, and people thought that was his presidential run that was coming but uh, and and in 2018 it's it's decentralization and decentralized technologies and i think I'd, I'd been. I remember I was on stage with um, Vitalik at some Swift event in 2015, and I, I asked him the question, "Why aren't we seeing West Coast tech adopt this stuff?" And he, his view was, "It kind of goes against their business model. Like they they centralize data, they centralize knowledge, and they they advertise against that." But actually, with Facebook having issues around reputation, around identity, around real or fake news. Is studying decentralization something that's going to help with that? I think it's a really good question, and it's interesting to see him put it out there. Um, one thing that I thought was really funny in this whole story is um, uh, somebody somebody wrote on Twitter earlier this week um, on the back of this article, it's funny that uh, Mark Zuckerberg knows that he can't say the word Bitcoin without making the Winklevoss twins <laughs> infinite times richer than they already are from buying Bitcoin very early on. So if you've not watched the Social Network movie, Go watch that movie to learn more. Petra, I'm looking at you because I know you haven't seen a lot of movies. So one of our assistant producers has not seen The Social Network and our producer Ollie is pulling an angry face right now. So, yeah. So we're going to have a movie night tonight then. Yeah, movie night is coming. <laughs> Um, it's it's great to see that Facebook is is trying to look at new technologies. I'm not at all surprised that they're looking at new technologies. Uh, it feels like maybe Mark Zuckerberg just spent too much time watching Silicon Valley, the TV show, because obviously this was the plot in the last season of decentralized Internet. Maybe he sees something and doesn't want to say cryptocurrency. I don't know. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, this is an incredibly powerful company that has uh, a more technical knowledge than pretty much anybody. Maybe maybe they rival Google. Maybe it's more. Maybe it's less. I don't know. Um, but if they do start to get involved with decentralized technologies, what that means, and potentially blockchains and cryptocurrencies, uh, we should at least look forward to cool technology coming out. One of the interesting things about uh, the whole 
permissionless blockchain space has been that these projects have been global in nature and anybody anywhere in the world could do them and they were seen as a as a force that changes the world much like the early days of the internet it was a lot of cryptographers and cypherpunks who came together and said this will change the relationship of the citizen with uh, with society and we're seeing the same sort of thing again as, as the internet got co-opted by big commerce. It, it kind of became centralized and it kind of became a commercial vehicle. And so now this this sort of pendulum is, is starting to swing back the other way. But then as it as it's done that, as the cypherpunk movement hits its peak with, with uh, cryptocurrency prices as, as they are, then you see the sort of West Coast tech scene, which let's face it, is stocked with some world-class engineers, has been hoarding world-class engineers for some time, who probably off the side of their desk have been playing with this stuff. There's a lot of internal demand, I think, to, to start working with it. There's an interesting quote he comes out with here. A lot of us got into technology because we believe it can be a decentralizing force that puts more power in people's hands. The first four words of Facebook's missions have always been, give people the power. Back in 1990s and 2000, most people believed technology would be a decentralizing force, but today, many people have lost faith in that promise with the rise of a small number of big tech companies and governments using technology to watch their citizens. Many people now believe technology only centralizes power rather than decentralizes it. There are important counter trends like encryptions and cryptocurrency that take that power away. So. It's an interesting, and he finishes off, uh, this will be a serious year of self-improvement, and I'm looking forward to learning and, and how we can fix these issues together. If he studied uh, AI in 2016, and arguably AI has been the hottest thing in, in tech since then, to me it's interesting that decentralization is now the thing that Zuckerberg's studying. I don't know that Facebook necessarily are the ones that, that do anything amazing with it, but it's a real signal to me of maturity that these pe these companies that would only focus on what will solve their problems are now focusing in this space. And actually, I, I did wonder, why why is this a banking conversation? Why is it a financial services conversation? Surely it should be a West Coast tech conversation. And I think now it is. But let, let's even bring it back to that. I mean, we've been talking about banks and, and distributed ledger technology and how these things can help their costs and all that great thing. Um, but now you have a company that is one of the most advanced companies. Um, we talked about their technology, but um, they make a ton of money. Um, they're driving new business models that didn't exist 15 years ago. And they're trying to say, right, our business model is being challenged after only 15 years. And we're talking about entrenched players in financial technology, or sorry, in financial services that are looking at financial technology, potentially doing that. These guys are moving so much quicker and maybe they're going to come eat your lunch if you're a bank trying to do these things slower and they say, boom, all of a sudden Facebook coin now exists and you can pay people anywhere in the world and you just plug it in. I don't buy that. I, I, I disagree quite heartily because the thing that Facebook did is they capitalized on a business model that goes all the way back to 1993. In 93, a company called GNN uh, was the first company in the world to support online content with advertising. And from that genesis, which was Tim O'Reilly, Seth Godin, and Lisa Gansky, those three people invented a business model that now supports Google and Facebook uh, as arguably being hoard data so that I can sell advertising. And uh, in 2011, The Economist said data is the new oil. You just need to look at the market cap of the world's 10 biggest companies and how many of them hoard data, with the exception of Apple, uh, who basically sell devices, pretty devices. The hoarding data is the business model. But there's only so much data you can ever hoard as one centralized company. What if 
if I was able to decentralize data like a Filecoin, like an IPFS, and empower you as an individual to be in control of it, but push my algorithm to you. So my algorithms can now move to wherever the data is. Then me as an algorithm producer, as a social network, I am then competing. My ad tech is competing wherever the data goes. But I might actually solve some of the privacy issues. Maybe that's a utopia. Maybe that's a dream. Maybe it won't happen. But I sort of see the logic the likes of a Zuck are getting at. And uh, it was really when Sheryl Sandberg arrived at Facebook that it turned from being an idealistic, we're never going to do ads, hell no, we want IPO, into a very hard-nosed commercial business. I wonder what happens after decentralization goes from uh, hell no, we won't do anything commercial into actually this needs to be commercial. So speaking of uh, hard-nosed and commercial, uh, <laughs> the New York Times has a story about the rise of a Bitcoin competitor called Ripple. Um, and if you go back to uh, a number of shows, uh, even the very first show we did uh, of uh, Blockchain Insider, we had uh, one of the specials right at the back of our, our iTunes feed. We had Stefan Thomas, the CTO of Ripple, uh, talk a lot about uh, why they have XRP and what is Ripple and why is Ripple. So do check that out by all means to, to hear from them directly. But this Bitcoin competitor Ripple has created wealth to rival Mark Zuckerberg himself, Colin. Indeed, uh, this is surprising considering, as we said, Mark Zuckerberg runs a highly profitable company and, and Ripple does not yet. As far as we know, it's a privately held company. Um, Ripple, of course, for those that aren't aware, has uh, much like Bitcoin, its own uh, cryptocurrency. Unlike Bitcoin, it is managed by this company that is still relatively centralized. They do some things to decentralize their own networks, but at the end of the day, they control it or um, companies that they've onboarded control it. So Ripple Labs Inc. Uh, has been funded by a number of venture capitalists to develop the Ripple Labs or, or, or Rippled set of, um, and I'm probably naming the products wrong, so apologies to any, any Ripple fans out there, but a set of technologies. And, and so they've done actually two things. The development of the Interledger Protocol, which is this open protocol that is uh, allowing you to connect different types of ledgers together, used by everybody from the Gates Foundation to Ripple themselves to connect legacy ledgers, uh, telcos, uh, banks. And, and it's a really interesting idea working with W3C, open source, open standards, but actually probably not decentralized, just, a, just an interesting project. Very interesting projects. Uh, Ripple is doing tons of cool things. A lot of it's focused around payments. Um, and as we said, it is decentralized on some levels. Uh, it's very different on some of the more underlying technology. But let's talk about that decentralization because um, Richard Brown, the CTO of R3, always talks about centralization and decentralization as a continuum. We often talk about Bitcoin being uh, everybody can have a copy of all of the data and uh, anyone can effectively be a miner it's a competition and so there's this truly permissionless network uh, in that sense now how it evolves because of the economic incentives and the centralization of mining is a different thing rather than that uh, kind of consensus algorithm proof of work the consensus for Ripple is quite different I pick 200 uh, unique node list validators who I trust not to collude so I basically pick 200 nodes I say these 200 nodes have to validate all of my transactions. And I trust that they won't collude against me as an individual, which rather than anybody can go compete, it's these arbitrary 200. And I can I can pick who those 200 are, but 
the reality is the only people really operating those nodes is Ripple themselves. So de facto, it's centralized. Of course, Ripple would then argue, but anybody can run one. It just happens that nobody is. We're trying to encourage anybody to run one of these nodes. It just so happens nobody is yet. It so happens, but you also need to go through an onboarding process, which is very different from Bitcoin, where literally, as you said, anybody can join. Um, and it's not just the security and making sure that my transactions go through or don't go through. It's also um, the notion in, in Bitcoin, we, we talk about how there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. The fact is, if everybody thinks that and everybody's running it and anybody can come in and validate these things, um, that's, a, that's a relatively strong promise. Um, this is a digital medium and you can copy things just like you can copy emails and send them off or you can copy files. Um, that notion of saying, well, there only will be this fixed number is a difficult thing. Now, if Ripple makes that same promise, we have to trust Ripple and maybe the other consortium members that uh, have made that promise as well, that there will be, I think it's 100 billion Ripple. Um, but uh, what's really interesting in this whole story is, is not just that Ripple has built this payment system um, that is not shares, Although it's completely under the control, um, it may, depending on some, some court cases that happened a couple of years ago, it may be a, a money transmitter uh, under U.S. laws. Um, but what was really interesting is the price just went bananas. Um, I think Brad Garlinghouse, the CEO, put out uh, a, a note saying at one point this, this year it was up to $3.5 or so from a fraction of a penny. So it was like a 59,000% increase in 12 months. 59,000%. Um, massive. And he's been kind of cheerleading this thing the whole whole way around. Um, one of the original co-founders was worth at one point this last week $59 billion. But were they worth it or was that paper value? Because if they were to sell their XRP, surely the Absolutely. price... And this is kind of the concern. So Ripple have come out to the market and said, we're going to sell XRP at this pace because actually there's a lot of people concerned in the market that Ripple have so many of these XRP coins that if they were to suddenly sell them, they would they would change the price overnight. They can manipulate this market because they have the majority of this thing that people want that now has, has real monetary value. Yeah, and I think that that's an important distinction that you made. It is it is paper value. Um, one could make the same argument about Mark Zuckerberg if he started selling off Facebook shares as well. Um, but uh, where it stood, the market value times the number of ripples in existence. Um, Chris Larson, the one of the co-founders of Ripple, was richer than Mark Zuckerberg at least on paper at one point last week. Um, so. Where I was really worried about this thing is I've been watching crypto markets uh, quite closely for the last few years. Um, I was really interested last week because of um, how I see Ripple marketed. Uh, we talked a bit about this on last week, last week's show. Uh, I'm not I'm not giving investment advice. That's not our business on this show. Um, but personally, I, I, I found it a very complex thing to understand exactly what they're selling. I've been working in banking for the last few years. I think I have a fairly good grasp. Maybe I'm not an expert, but I have a fairly good grasp of how banking works. Uh, a lot of people are trying to sell this as different things. Ripple's put out a lot of information. What they haven't done is told people that there's a risk that these things may go down. And they've been down 40% in the last three or four days. And there's a lot of people who are going out and buying these things on credit cards. They're going out and they're, they're borrowing money to buy ripples that have dropped 40% in the last three or four days. This is an absolute atrocity, I think. People are going to be potentially not being able to pay their mortgage, their credit card bills, not being able to eat. Um, this is really dangerous. And we talk about this on the show. When you buy a cryptocurrency, whether it's a Bitcoin, whether it's Tether, whether it's Ripple, whether it's anything else, you're going to the casino in Las Vegas. Don't put money that you can't afford to lose 100% of. 
And what I find really dangerous here is that Ripple can control these currencies. They can put things in like our vesting periods and they can manipulate the price. And it appears that they have done. And they've made promises and say, we're dealing with Western Union. We're dealing three of the five largest banks in the world, which make the prices go through the roof because everybody thinks we're going to get rich. And there are a number of reporters. Um, and so there's this great piece as well by um, Ryan Selkis on his Medium blog called uh, I See You XRP, where he, he, he does, I think, try and take as much of a balance approach as he can uh, he tries to make uh, the argument uh, for for why people see uh, ripple may be a competitor to swift so swift being the interbank network in which uh, all major transactions happen so if i'm going to try and send money to australia what actually happens is i tell my bank to send money to the customer in australia's bank and they figure it out through swift and the idea being well actually that's slow it's expensive sometimes that payment can take days it can take weeks it can cost between 30 and 50 dollars to me as a consumer to get that done uh, so something that replaces that and work like email wouldn't that be great and by the way this coin is is kind of going to be what fuels it i think that's that's part of the that, that's the really high level view of it that there's a lot more complexity to it than that and i think people people do make uh, different arguments and the ripple argument is but, is but much let's more talk nuanced. about that swift point just for a second um I, I put out a tweet earlier earlier this week and was talking a bit about this right now the market cap is about three billion dollars for xrps the the ripple currency swift profits last year were 29 million dollars that's a hundred times more than swift profits so if you were to replace swift you would potentially make a hundred x less per year in profit than the valuation so you basically got a 100x pe ratio if if you held one dollar worth of xrp and it were to return in the same way that swift did you would earn one penny per year so it would take you a hundred years to recoup your investment if nothing else changed that's <sighs> mic drop uh, I think there's, there's little else to say on top of that. Um, but of course, um, look, the, the company uh, has had a number of narratives. I think um, Marcus Treacher, Stefan uh, Thomas, I think a lot of these uh, folks that are there and uh, would admit freely that the, the company that told the story in 2015 is a different company telling the story in 2018. I think they've learned a lot along the way. Uh, and I think what they're telling now is, is, is something quite different. Um, they have a product that works as sensibly for, I think, probably tier two financial institutions. My own background is I worked in a, in a bank. Uh, I, I know a lot of people who worked in banks. And you've got to consider that what is, how does payments work um, when, when you're doing SWIFT, right? So you've got to think a bank right now is a glorified spreadsheet right at its very core it's got um who's which accounts uh, you know who are my customers and what is their balance and who are your customers and what is their balance in other words yours and mine in the in the banking parlance this is nostro vostro my customers have this much your customers have that much i have this much you have that much and what we do is we effectively send emails to each other say I'm going to uh, send you this much. And you go, great, I've received your message. Go ahead and send me that much. And then what I do is I change my spreadsheet to say, I have done that. And then what I do is I send you an email going, I've done it. And you go, great, I've done it too. That's basically how Swift works. Uh, but the interesting part about that is the Swift part is just sending the email. What Ripple have done is replaced sending the email. What they haven't done is replaced the bit inside the bank. And the problem is the bit inside the bank is the bit that's slow. 
And so if I don't replace the bit inside the bank, I haven't replaced the cost for the bank. If I don't replace the bit inside the bank, I haven't made the transaction go faster. If I don't replace the bit inside the bank, I haven't solved the problem. And the other problem is one of the front-loaded costs is around uh, anti-money laundering. So we've seen a bunch of banks have big fines around money laundering. So if I go to um, receive some money from you, you're a bank in Mexico, you send me some money, I'm a bank in the UK, I have to know that that's not from a Mexican drug cartel. The only way I can know that, because I'm not on the ground in Mexico, is if you, the bank in Mexico, actually know who your customer is. The only way I can know that you know who your customer is is by flying a team of my compliance specialists to sit with your compliance specialists once a year to watch you do your job. I am reliant on your controls. Ripple does not solve that. And that is the biggest cost in all of banking is KYC AML. Not, not in all of banking, in all of payments. Um, that's, that's where the cost comes from. So there's a big uh, truism in building any startup or building any company, which is solve a customer problem. And I think there are customer problems that can be solved with what is effectively moving IOUs around a closed network. Um, well, not a closed network, a semi-closed network that has an interesting uh, way of moving moving those IOUs around. For example, uh, if I'm a corporate and I have a large amount of cash, let's say I'm one of the world's largest technology companies, if I have to move that between banks, I'm paying a lot of SWIFT fees. If I can move IOUs around and I can account for that on a Ripple-like network, that's a really interesting proposition. So by no means am I saying that Ripple's useless, but I do think some of the speculation and the hype that's driven the price, I've, I've seen tweets saying, oh, the banksters are here, this is bankster coin. I don't know that that's well-informed from having seen what I've seen working in financial services. I, I would agree with that. And I think the, the notion that Ripple can become its own reserve currency amongst the banks um, is wrong from the people supporting XRP, uh, Ripples, as wrong from people calling it the bankster coin, because, as you said, it doesn't make sense. Um, but I think the, the challenge I would issue to Ripple, the company, is um, warn people that are buying your, your XRP currency of the risk. I'm looking at your website right now. All you say is we're committed to long-term health and stability. You don't put any normal risk disclosures that any investment would have. And, and for a long time, Ripple have said, we're a technology company. We just produce technology. But there is only one issuer of XRP. And, and the words, we are committed to the long-term health and stability of XRP markets, sounds a whole lot like investment. And it sounds a whole lot like, I, I won't say scam, because um, I think that that word's overused in this space. But it sounds a whole lot like something that you can't necessarily deliver upon. And um, if I were a securities regulator looking at this, I would be asking Brad Garlinghouse and the rest of the team a lot of questions about what it is they're doing, what it is they're promising to the market and retail investors. I would tell them to knock it off. But it could potentially hurt a whole lot of people that have been in this uh, at a higher price than it is today. And I think that would be a real shame uh, to, to not take your advice there, Colin, because if Ripple were to deliver on their promise of making it so that I can move money around the world in real time, what problems could I solve? Well, I could immediately solve problems for big companies, but who cares about that? I could potentially make a massive difference to uh, people who work in uh, a developed country who send money home. There are a lot of people, we have some that work in our company, who send a large percentage of their salary home. 
because where they come from, they're not making a lot of money. And most of that is gouged in fees. There's an, an extreme, like if I'm sending, uh, I don't know, um, $500 and 50 to $60 are taken in fees, that makes a real difference to, to the people who are at home. Being able to solve that problem is phenomenal. And I think I would support any movement to solve that problem. And what Ripple have done with Interledger and the Gates Foundation is to be commended. It's absolutely fantastic work. There is real promise inside that organization, um, but I do think think that we we should see a change in narrative absolutely and and hopefully a little bit of respect and responsibility for uh this three billion euros that they've got floating around in the market uh and they don't really even know who holds these things yeah it's it, it's challenging and, and i guess if you float them out there and you've got exchanges um maybe it's it's on the exchanges you can't expect ripple to do all of it um but some, some sensible noises would be nice okay um so in a similar vein there's an organization called tssb who have ordered the cancel of a BitConnect token sale so the this is the texas regulator and they've ordered bitconnect to just stop call off your token sale um so um they are the texas securities board and they've started bitconnect to just stop uh, according to the news release on the website bitconnect was claiming to offer tokens with 100 percent annual returns um which the tssb determined qualifies unregistered securities um and they were looking to promote its token which the Texas agency deemed uh, qualify agents who are not registered to sell securities. Um, sales agents were targeting Texas residents as well as residents of other states. So bit of like the regulators coming type uh, type stuff but it's it's often on this smaller scale they've not gone after the big names yet well i, I think bitconnect was was uh, a very easy one to come after um it was interesting to see that the, the state of texas decided it was going to be a first mover on this um we've talked a lot about the sec we've talked about the fca and amongst others uh looking at these things um let's not forget that in in the united states each individual state has its own financial regulator um which multiplies the likelihood that if you do something wrong at least in the united states by 50 times so um if you are operating what this was and what they called this which appeared to be a ponzi scheme of some sorts um making promises and and paying uh, previous investors with new investment money uh it will be very difficult to uh deliver any kind of return this is very akin to what um uh, bernie madoff was promising back in the day well i find this sort of stuff immensely frustrating because the amount of people i come across in the crypto asset and DLT communities who are trying to build things for customers that are trying to solve real problems that are hampered by regulatory uncertainty or just a, a mood music that is, hey, these things are all scammed is really frustrating because these people are trying to do great things. They're, they're trying to do good things. And then you get something like this that's an obvious scam that, that potentially could damage the whole market. And uh, it, I find that frustrating. What I thought was even more frustrating about the whole thing is after this was released, uh, the price still pumped. And so we, we've got to talk a little bit about pump and dump uh, schemes there. We, we mentioned briefly in my predictions from 2018 and, and, and the last episode on, on episode 27 that these pump and dump rings seem to be operating with impunity. Um, they seem to be able to pump any altcoin they want. Um, there's very little uh, sophistication in terms of uh, infiltrating these organizations. It's not seen as any sort of financial crime. Uh, and it's all happened very, very quickly. And it's gone from being, hey, this little corner of the internet to being a really significant business. And now the, the punters are here, people who are you know, kind of... This is this is a big conversation. This is this is headline news on on any news channel you can think of. Uh, real people will lose real money because of this stuff. 
Absolutely. And not, not just people in cryptocurrencies. Um, I mean, if, if some of these things start going bad, people won't pay, as we said earlier, won't pay their mortgages, won't pay their credit cards, which can have a knock-on effect to people that aren't even touching Bitcoin today or, or these other cryptocurrencies. Um, so, I mean, what is it? Um, people are in an in-crowd. Generally, what happens is they go in and they buy a particular cryptocurrency, generally in a single exchange. Um, usually, they look for things like uh, the price hasn't moved much lately or is quite low compared to historical prices, relatively low volumes, meaning not very many are trading back and forth over a given day or a week. Um, they'll buy a significant sum of them. They'll get their friends in to buy a significant sum of them. Generally, they, they coalesce through things like uh, Telegram groups or, or WhatsApp or wherever else. And then they'll start pushing this in concert on things like Facebook, uh, things like uh, Twitter. And other people start to go, oh, this is interesting. And the prices might start to go up. And when you have low volumes, it's pretty easy to bid up a price. And when you see the price is now doubled, tripled, quadrupled, you go, well, I went in on that. And you keep buying it until... The early guys who had a lot more than anybody bought in later at a higher price start dumping them, start selling them off, and then the price comes right back down. Think like you go up the side of the the Eiffel Tower and drop right back down. Yeah, that is the the classic pump and dump, and and real people will lose out. Uh, and and when I say real people, I, I mean people who don't have the shoulders to absorb those losses. People for whom losing that money is is a serious consequence. And and I hate to kind of have such a downtone on it but it, there's a lot of uh people who i respect in this market who are uh kind of talking about this in, in these terms lately uh it's getting quite worrying and 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 my fear is that this kind of um becomes the thing that unpicks the whole house of cards for the crypto asset prices which then potentially damages innovation and that's my real worry um because if we were to do that we'd miss a, miss a real opportunity but can i be really cynical and say in the last six months or so I have not seen anything produced out of the cryptocurrency markets that doesn't resemble a pump and dump. Wow. Uh, so next story, um, Visa have dropped several debit cards that uh, were directly funded from cryptocurrency. So um, this is a story in CNBC. Um, and uh, Colin, what's, what's this one about? So um, what's happened in the last uh, several months is a lot of people have been talking, uh, there was a lot of ICOs that focused on this, talking about offering uh, holders of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoins, Litecoins, everything else you can imagine, the ability to spend those in your normal transactions, generally through MasterCards or through Visas. So you could go in, buy your Bitcoin, transfer them to another account where you could walk in to pay your restaurant bill using uh, cryptocurrencies, which is quite cool for a lot of people who actually want to use these and spend them. Visa was one of the larger um, uh, producers. Of them. There was a company underneath it, um, and apologies, I can't remember the name of it. Wavecrest. Wavecrest, there we go, um, that would allow um, a company to pass through and allow you to spend your money at the restaurant. Um, so this works if you're a uh, kind of crypto-rich individual you've got a whole bunch of bitcoin you want to avoid the banking system because screw them banksters and i'm living in crypto and the future's coming uh and i've got my debit card now and i can spend crypto or it's just convenient because actually you know like moving money between bitcoin and banks sucks and banks haven't made it made it easy and it hasn't been brought into the light in, in, in a simple way so wavecrest are one of these organizations there are a number of them if you're looking to launch a debit card or a prepaid card you would go to them and say i would like to set this program up and they will help you and a lot of fintech startups have used organizations like Wavecrest to launch launch their products. But companies like Bitwala, CryptoPay, uh, Wirex, and Tenex, um, they they were they've all been affected by this. So this is this is quite significant. Uh, they've all been affected by this, and I, I think there was there was 
millions of dollars that were attached to prepaid cards that I don't know what's going to happen with them anymore. Um, but at least they can't be spent out uh, in the normal way. So this is a big hit to people that have been proposing cryptocurrencies as a payment mechanism that did rely on this. Now, we could question that and say, well, if you have this peer to peer payment system, why do you even need Visa or MasterCard or anybody else? Why don't you just bypass that inconvenience? Um, the, the fact is, this is infrastructure the world isn't ready for. It's, it's like the idea of electric cars are a great idea, but if, if you live in the countryside, where are you going to plug it in when you're driving from point A to point B? Uh, infrastructure really matters, and uh, Visa and MasterCard have to be some of the biggest infrastructure players that the normal person would touch uh, that exists in the financial services market. So for a long time, uh, Visa and MasterCard talked about what they actually sold was their brand and access. Uh, Visa is second only to Red Bull for having the largest uh, percentage of revenue spent on marketing. They they are 100% about brand awareness. You do not struggle to recognize the Visa logo. They sell access. And so the flip side of that is if you break their rules, th that can be really powerful um, and those rules are actually set by the people that own visa and visa is now a plc but still has a lot of shareholders that are banks uh, but this is an organization that uh, has influence and, and has been influenced by governments so this is uh, i think this could be seen as an instrument of hey the the uh, the uh, the illuminati are fighting back against the the crypto crypto world and oh look how bad governments are but i actually think this is far simpler than that i get the sense that there's a lot of organizations that probably needed to do a bit more due diligence and homework and and uh, be more accessible to the likes of wavecrest and visa rather than just coming along and say ah oh, there's my supplier i'm just going to make this work you actually go have a conversation and you figure out okay here let, let's figure out how we make this work properly and and generally it's just like do your homework guys mm -hmm. fintech startups i come from that background have had to do this and, and a lot of them fall by the wayside because they didn't get compliance right and compliance is just public opinion compliance is just what customers want compliance is just solving a customer problem and if you can do it the the crap way that big banks do it or you can do it an elegant way like a fintech startup does but you gotta do it yeah I, the, the thing that surprised me most about this because i i used to work in a company that literally was uh, employed by mastercard to go out and find companies that were selling online using mastercard uh, and find out what they were doing if it fit into things was blacklisted or was whitelisted um and, and we were fairly efficient on it. I had to go through and look through uh, Nordic markets to find the stuff. Um, but that was 10 years ago, and we had to look at it. It was relatively automatic. The fact that it took them this long to figure out people were using cryptocurrencies, which are very clearly in their black area, uh, is kind of ridiculous, really. But also, like, I, I, I do have an issue with just outright bans. I, I'd, I'd, I'd prefer a conversation which is, hey, we know you're doing this. Come have a chat about how we do it properly. Uh, there's, I think the outright ban that um, financial institutions and anybody in financial markets tends to do is, is, is this blunt instrument that actually isn't in customers' interests. And that, that really concerns me um so uh as uh, visa has dropped debit cards some exchanges are dropping users so story from coin telegraph where binance bitfinex bitrex are temporarily saying no to new users so for anybody who listened to um last week's show episode 27 we had peter pete rizzo and i think he was paraphrasing somebody when he said uh the market cap of many of the cryptocurrencies or bitcoin is up what 20x in the last year but is the infrastructure up 20x and this may be a symptom of that colin 
It, it may be. And, uh, you know, if, if anybody's been using Kraken, obviously we're based in Europe. They, they trade in euros, so it is a quite popular option, uh, at least where we are. Uh, I know in, in other markets it may be less so because uh, they're more dollar-based or another cryptocurrency, or sorry, another fiat currency. I don't even know what we're talking about as far as currency anymore. Um, Bitfinex is actually the largest in the world. Um, Bittrex, I think, is, is third or fourth, depending on how you count. Uh, Binance is, is a bit smaller, but is uh, relatively new and had massive growth. Um, it's interesting to see that they're closing off and not taking on new users. Kraken, of course, um, had to uh, rejig some of the things because it became more or less unusable uh, over the last few months. Um, so there are there is rampant speculation in the cryptocurrency space that maybe there's been a hack, maybe there's been money lost because the commonality between all these things is they happen to use Tether, uh, which we haven't talked too much about on the show, um, but is a, uh, a currency that is pegged to the dollar. And a lot of people speculated that uh, there may not actually be dollars behind it. Um, so uh, Bitfinex is a, a big shareholder in the company that backs Tether. Um, whether whether that's the case or whether there are too many users uh, remains to be seen. Um, but I know a lot of companies, Coinbase being very open about it, um, have seen huge influxes. Um, I, I, I was talking to Simon this morning, I came over on a flight, um, and in the flight magazine I saw seven advertisements for cryptocurrencies. Um, so uh, to say that people are interested in cryptocurrencies is a bit of an understatement. Uh, I'll let you know uh, tomorrow on my next flight uh, how many I see in the next magazine. Yeah, well, um, I think as those uh, centralized exchanges are struggling, um, the decentralized exchange, Radar Delay, did nearly 10 times uh, their daily volume to hit a record $2 million uh, in the past day, according to ZeroXTracker.com. And this is a tweet from uh, Melton Demoise of... Uh, Digital currency group. Um, Twenty-four hours later, they're about to cross ten million. Uh, so this is an this is like J curve growth for a decentralized exchange. And decentralized exchanges have been mooted for quite some time as being the solution to um, what a lot of people have had issues with in terms of how are these things going to scale. But decentralization is something that's arguably slower than centralization. Do they solve some of the problems, or do they just make it easier to do pump and dumps? I think there's 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 a real set of ethical questions. There's a real set of technical questions but regardless um that's a heck of a move and and i think a lot of people have been watching and waiting for decentralized exchanges to become a thing i think they just became a thing i i think they did but let's let's not forget the the undertone of what happened a few weeks ago with um ether delta ether delta which was one of the larger um decentralized exchanges which got hacked what was really interesting about um this new exchange about uh, Radar Relay is that it uses uh, something called 0x, which is a new uh, infrastructure layer on top of Ethereum that allows them to be more efficient. Um, whether it is, I, I don't know. Uh, 10 million is still very small um, by the, the volumes that we see in these markets. Cryptocurrencies today, as we're staring at them, is about uh, $45 billion trading. So, you know, going from two to $10, $10 million in a day is great. Um, it's still a drop in drop in the ocean if your fees are basis points that's yeah it's still not incredible but let's see how that growth continues and let's see if we can reach out to some of the folks at zero x because uh, i want to learn more about that for sure really interesting project absolutely um so uh, like visa um there's a story on ccn.com about how the bank of england have quote dropped uh, their own plans for a cryptocurrency fearing instability 
I don't know how true this one is. Um, I'm not uh, familiar with the publication CCN, um, but uh, they have a, a lot of pop-ups coming at me right now, and my ad block is going crazy. Um, but <laughs> they have been around for a while, but yeah, you can question a lot of what they put out. But um, this is actually according to FT Advisor. Um, the bank began researching cryptocurrencies in 2015 and was considering launching its own I don't know that that's true. Um, I know the Bank of England did put out a working paper on the benefits of um, central bank-issued digital currency, which uh, suggested that um, 100% hypothetical research-based um, paper suggested that a 3% uplift in GDP could be possible if we moved away from parking bonds as collateral at central banks and instead central banks issued this, this digital token and we were pushing those across the balance sheet. It was done through um, maths and economics. It was 100% uh, kind of just uh, theory. And uh, the Bank of England has looked at also at uh, distributed ledger as having some benefits in terms of resilience and for backup and dis uh, disaster recovery. Um, but they've never had any plans to, to, to my sources anyway, um, of, of launching their own cryptocurrency. But we have seen reports about other parts of the world, um, potentially a crypto ruble, potentially um, the PBOC launching their own. I wonder how much of this is optics and how much of this is really true. Uh, I think it probably falls in the optics. But can I say, while we're talking about bankers, Jamie Dimon doesn't think that Bitcoin's a scam, or he at least regrets saying it now. I think he regrets saying it just from how many people must have given him stick. I think, uh, just don't talk about Bitcoin anymore, Jamie, please. Like, uh, he, I think that's they, kind of it. He, he says he's still disinterested, right? So, I mean, that's kind of the best you can get. I think he's just grandpa on a rocking chair that's, you know, got some opinions that probably should uh, should stay clear of the whiskey cabinet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's quote of the day <laughs> so uh to be fair to the guy he runs one of the world's largest organizations and does uh, does a pretty good job with it so uh, who am i to comment uh but anyway if um if you've been curious about neo um neo is the so-called ethereum of china they're holding their first ever developer conference in san francisco at the intercontinental hotel on the 30 uh, 30th and 31st of january and the first 50 listeners of blockchain insider can get an exclusive 15% discount on tickets by entering the code INSIDE. You know, like you walk inside some places, Colin, you, you, you're good at that. Um, that's, uh, that's INSIDE. Go to devcon.neo.org to find out more about the event and register today. Um, all right, so Colin, uh, there's a whole bunch of stories here that, I mean, just so much news this week. Let's just blast through them and like almost have one word answers. This could be fun. Let's do it. All right, so QTUM partners with Bowerfang to become bigger than Bitcoin and Ethereum. Does anybody know who Bowerfang are? This is on payment week. <laughs> One word answer, no. Um, so this, this um, all right, so uh, QTM, the blockchain and application platform has partnered with the Chinese video portal giant to help achieve the world's first blockchain consensus network and build uh, the most decentralized blockchain node network. Um, I'm going to have to get onto uh, WeChat and ask some people what's going on with this one because uh, I confess fully, I don't understand it. Um, and I need to understand it more. This was the one that PwC did audits for, and they were like marketing that around is this is proof that we are the greatest blockchain ever. Interesting. Um, there's your one word answer. It, are we in a bubble, Colin? Because right now um, there's an organization called uh, Dentacoin, a dentistry based crypto coin that's just shot up by 900%. Good question. Uh, brush your teeth. Uh, best advice I can give you, it's not financial, but uh, definitely brush your teeth. Your brush your teeth be before happy. bed, kids, and maybe you'll gain 900% of a coin. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
that's bringing smiles to investors without question. That was a story from Bitcoinist. Um, Bloomberg and Quint.com. Uh, Bitcoin miners are shifting outside China amid a clampdown. This could be quite serious. Yeah, apparently they're going to Canada. Uh, blame Canada. Uh, th- those guys uh, had it right all along. Um, story on TechCrunch. Telegram plans a multi-billion dollar ICO for their uh, chat cryptocurrency. We saw this with Kik. Um, now Telegram are giving it a go. Telegram, of course, though, the home of uh, lots of conversations for the uh, people who care about privacy and also potentially pump and, pump and dump schemes. So, Makes sense. Um, <laughs> it's kind of meta, isn't it? They're, they're, they're playing to their audience for sure, but um, I, I'd love to see if there's, there's something real there. I, I'm not convinced there is. Um, story on Coindesk about what crypto didn't give us in 2017. Um, I'm not sure, Colin, have you seen this one? I, I have only cursorily glanced over it. Uh, it's a long article. Um, we didn't see mass adoption. We didn't see clear distinction between blockchains, tokens, and cryptocurrencies. I absolutely agree. Um, we've not seen self-regulation yet take hold, although I know a few people in this room that are looking at that. Um, so if you're interested in that, reach out to us. Um, and we don't have uh, interchain operation operability and there's a lot of people working on that there are projects including ripple congratulations ripple on those things yeah interledger is a very interesting project without question uh cosmos polkadot there's a whole bunch of them and i'm sure i'm forgetting a whole bunch as well um there's an indian lawyer who's filed a petition demanding cryptocurrency regulation because petitions work um there's a story on how stuff works blockchain technology is ready to dis disrupt the world uh don't know about that do you think it was the tapscots that wrote that <laughs> uh, and the observer how i fell for the uh, blockchain gold rush and last but not least um the story on business wire um just in kodak stock <laughs> kodak are back they've uh, they're back from forgetting about digital cam- cameras they've announced they're launching a cryptocurrency because 2018 like why not take a punt come on uh, thanks to Gary Fagan for uh, bringing that to our attention. Uh, don't forget, listeners, you can let us know what you think about any of the stories or just what's going on in the crypto markets uh, by getting in touch on Twitter at BeChain Insider, or you can get in touch with Colin directly, the GSAS himself, at Colin G. Platt, or, or myself at SY Taylor if you want to pick up with us personally. You can also head over to fintechinsidernews.com. That's fintechinsidernews.com. All the stories we post and talk about, all the stories we talk about even, are posted on uh, fintechinsidernews.com. So get involved in the discussion. And you can drop us an email at podcasts at 11fs.com. We'd love to hear from you because, my God, there's a lot going on right now. Um, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, asset managers, or anybody with a challenge in blockchain and DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialize this stuff, what to commercialize, what not to commercialize, um, what's ready, what's not ready, um, then get in touch. Uh, Or if you just want a speaker for your next event, podcasts at 11fs.com. All right, um, now for our interviews, I caught up with Ville Sanitu, the head of DLT and blockchain at Nordea, and we talk about we.trade, the consortium. Great, so we are here once again. Uh, Colin G. Platt joins me for an interview with Ville from Nordea. Ville, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm good. How about you? I'm not too bad. Um, so tell listeners a little bit about who you are, uh, who you work for, what do you do? Right, so name is Ville Sointo. I'm the head of DLT and blockchain uh, in Nordea Bank. For those of you who don't know, Nordea Bank is the largest uh, bank in the Nordic and Baltic regions. We have about 11 million customers. Uh, and about 30,000 employees. So well-known in the Nordics for sure. Uh, I run the DLT and blockchain team uh, inside Nordea, which has been a 
two two and a half year exercise uh, for for Nordea. Uh, I joined the team uh, as, as a leader uh, June last year. So that's me. You joined in June last year. What were you doing before you joined Nordea? Yeah, I've uh, about 15 years, give or take, of experience in fintech. Uh, I think uh, I started 2002, uh, started working with e-banking, mobile banking, then moved on to mobile payments, uh, you know, spent around a decade uh, trying to convince everybody that, you know, the utopia, utopia of mobile financial services is just around the corner. Uh, and then, uh, you know, after a decade of doing that, I, I figured out that, okay, I, I might need to go to a place where it actually makes a difference. So in 2012, I, uh, I started working with mobile money uh, in emerging markets. And uh, funnily enough, that le- led me into blockchain uh, because uh, the uh, back in 2013, uh, I kind of got the idea, we got the idea uh, where I was working back then that uh, we might use blockchain and Bitcoin as, as a kind of an interoperability tool uh, for these closed mobile money systems. And uh, ever since, I've been working with uh, DLT and blockchain. Finally, I got in 2017, uh, after you know concluding a lot of prototyping, research, uh, and POCs, uh, but very little production deployments uh, for technical and regulatory reasons, of course, uh, I, I got the chance to join Nordea. And uh, that's, that's what I've been doing for the past uh, six, seven months now. Uh, leading the team here, uh, finally getting something tangible done, I hope. I love the sounds of getting things tangible done. Can I pick up on that point? So you, you were talking about lots of legal regulatory headaches before. Are, are you seeing that happening now that these things are starting to lift? Or is it that you've gotten better at figuring out how to get around those problems? I think, you know, the uh, the hype has gone away a little bit, especially on the DLT on the enterprise side, right? So, uh, you know, finally, you know, the banks have started to recruit people uh, and, you know, have people inside the organizations that actually understand this stuff now. And, uh, you know, you know, distinguishing between the public blockchain and, and enterprise blockchain has helped a lot in these conversations. And starting to map this uh, kind of this technology into actual regulation and law uh, and, you know, even business is starting to happen right now. And uh, I think, you know, we're seeing the move away from this POC phase uh, and, you know, trying to kind of find the first things that we can actually kick out the door, uh, hopefully uh, starting now this year, uh, which is what we're doing at least. So when we talk about uh, getting out of proof of concepts, moving from the lab into production, what do you think about as being the key use cases and what are you doing at Nordea to, to get that done? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we made a couple of announcements. Uh, in December, we announced that we joined the WeTrade uh, consortium, uh, or which used to be called the Digital Trade Chain. Uh, and this, you know, trade finance being one of the kind of obvious use cases for uh, DLT uh, kind of was, was kind of a really good case for us to take forward uh, as, as a first candidate as well. And um, and this, uh, what makes the difference, I think, in, in DTC or WeTrade uh, is the kind of clear focus on, on business case and having a really kind of clearly defined minimal minimal product we can actually get uh, delivered and i think this focus is what distinguishes uh, this we trade uh, quite clearly uh, from maybe the other other kind of exercises in the same space it's it's not it's nothing fancy but you have to really start from something something tangible that you can really kind of get into into production and i think this focus and uh, focus on governance and execution is uh, really a standout feature of, of we trade so tell me the um, WeTrade story. Let's take it back to basics. Uh, who's it for and why Why would they want it versus what they've got today? Sure. So in very short, WeTrade uh, is, a, is a platform for uh, SME, SME sellers and uh, buyers uh, in the European market. 
So it facilitates trade, trade between SMEs uh, for importers and exporters and creates trust uh, between these entities that was not there before. Uh, this is less of a problem for large corporations, obviously. You know, they can they can have multiple tools uh, to kind of create trust between the seller and the buyer. But for the SMEs, the, uh, you know, the small brewers and, you know, small wine merchants, uh, this this really doesn't exist. There's, there are no tools that we can, even as Nordea, offer today for SME customers uh, to facilitate trade uh, across Europe. And this is what WeTrade does. Uh, we basically share the KYC information or KYC, the fact that KYC exists and the, and the customer uh, relationship exists uh, between the consortium banks. And this creates trust, quite simply put. So you talk about a consortium of banks. Uh, you talked about a business case. Uh, is a big consortium of banks the right bunch of people to be doing this for small businesses? Um, are, are, the, are the interests aligned? And, and secondly, um, is the technology enabling a business case that wasn't available before? For us, at least, it is. I mean, the, uh, really, we, you know, the existing systems uh, don't really scale down. That, that well. So, for example, for us, we're opening up a whole new segment uh, of customers uh, in terms of SMEs. So, the uh, the fact that we can offer uh, the ability to remove the prepayment condition that's usually existing between SMEs uh, in the European market uh, is a new, completely new product that we can offer in the Nordics. And uh, this opens up new business. I think you know more than half of the existing trade of these customers is actually uh, based on prepayment, and you know. Wow. So talk me through that. Talk me through what prepayment is and why it's a pain point for those customers. Sure. So if I'm a, if I'm a small, uh, small to medium-sized enterprise, for example, in my home country, Finland, uh, selling goods to, let's say, France, uh, the only way uh, that me, I, I can actually ship that product to this uh, you know, buyer in France is that I actually get fully, full prepayment. Uh, it's, it's just an un- unfortunate reality because you cannot really trust. You don't know who is on the other side, not really. Uh, so this prepayment condition really is, uh, is a pain point because this prepayment, of course, also kind of makes it less likely for the buyer to you know, pay because if they also don't trust the seller, uh, especially if it's the first time transaction that you're doing between these entities. So... Uh, if we can remove this trust barrier uh, and then offer simple finan- financing and credit products uh, on top of that, uh, it, it becomes a really uh, completely new untapped market uh, that we're hoping to uh, kind of address now. So you talked about, so that's the business case, I guess, for the small uh, businesses, uh, but you talked about it having a business case, I guess, for the banks as well. How do you see that um, kind of evolving beyond where it is today and, and getting into production and scale? And could you have just used an, a traditional technology for this? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think, you know, one of the one of the kind of misconceptions of a lot of these uh, enterprise blockchain and DLT cases is that, uh, you know, this cannot be done with anything else. No, I mean, you know, you could build a centralized platform to do the exact same thing but the difference is in governance and what what i what i think is uh, in building the network and making the network scale because even though we're right now we're just nine banks uh we're, we're opening this up uh, for other banks as well and we have we're lining up uh candidates to onboard into the platform uh or into the network as well and uh you know dlt makes it possible for us to build these nodes uh, for the new banks uh, and deploy them and the banks will control their own data they have all the privacy that is necessary for for making this work and that that would be exponentially hard to do and scale uh, with a traditional solution but yeah i mean you could do it uh, with a centralized platform you could build build the facebook of smes i guess uh, for 
for Europe, but uh, getting banks and uh, uh, SMEs to participate in that would be much harder than now. We can actually guarantee the privacy and trust uh, between all the participants. So governance is the key. I guess uh, my question then is, is uh, what does this look like for the small business? Do they end up with uh, kind of a new website where they've got a new product that they buy from the likes of an Nordea? And how do you see that evolving in, in the coming years? Because uh, it, it, it's going to be like a new product you guys offer, but other banks on the other side need to offer it. Is that something that's still a bit of a catch-22? Well, I think, you know, we start from the basics. You offer a web application that, uh, you know, SMEs can use to log in and uh, find these buyers and sellers uh, from this yellow pages application. Uh, so, you know, for the, for them, actually, they don't even need to understand that it's a blockchain or it's a DLT or decentralized. They don't need to understand anything about the architecture or how do we connect these buyers and sellers. Uh, it just looks like a fancy web page with great usability. So, I mean, that's the key. I mean, you know, having this simple application uh, and then offering the, you know, different kind of, uh, form factors, tablets, iPhones, uh, uh, mobile applications to, to use that application with is key and less focus on, on what is the technology behind it. Uh, obviously, we're looking into ways how this scales uh, in the future. Uh, right now, we're focusing on just building a very simple web application, like I said. Uh, but in the future, uh, we might end up uh, in a pro- proposition that is more uh, API-based and you know, we basically become an infrastructure layer. But right now, like I said, for the, for the first product out uh, later this year, we will have a single web app uh, just to make this thing work. Interesting. So what would you say to a head of trade at, at another bank uh, that you know, was thinking about joining this network and it might help grow the network or a head of product or you know, somebody who's um, a small business owner? What would you say to them um, for, for why you think this is valuable and why you think the network um, is, is, is of value? I think, you know, what really caught us was basically understanding how much you for SMB business uh, or, or your SMEs today are using prepayment and then asking the asking the SME, how much business do you think you're losing uh, because of the prepay, prepayment condition? And uh, I think that kind of clicks to a lot of, uh, lot of our customers, at least. Uh, we spend a lot of time uh, talking to our SME customers uh, about, you know, this proposition and the, and the, and the feedback has been uh, overwhelmingly positive. So uh, what I would suggest for a head of trade uh, at a bank is to go talk to your SMEs, ask these questions, uh, you know, and then, then look at your numbers and you will probably understand whether you want to join uh, or not quite quickly. I, th- I think you made a really interesting point in that last part. Um, a, a lot of banks kind of come at this and say, you know, we're going to do this DLT project or this innovation project because it'll help us. Um, but it's, it's very rare. And I think you made a very good point to go out and talk to your clients and say, well, what actually makes your life better? Um, and that's that's a big differentiation factor here. Um, can you talk a bit more about um, how you might see this platform after you deliver the, the first thing? Is, is the intention to grow kind of sideways and take in bigger clients beyond the SME sector? Or is it to say we can do other things in addition to trade finance? I think, you know, the first thing that we're going to do once we've shipped the first product is to start onboarding more banks. So we want to kind of proliferate, uh, especially in Europe. So that, you know, our customers here in the Nordics can find their counterparties in all the countries. Now, with the existing consortium of nine banks, we cover uh, Europe quite nicely. But obviously, we're looking forward to onboarding uh, other banks as well, including the Nordics. I mean, there's, you know, even, you know, pan-Nordic trade uh, for, you know, customers other than our own uh, is quite significant. So we we're looking forward to getting getting that done as well. So, yeah, uh, getting more, ba- more banks involved, uh, seeing what works and then kind of iterating on the existing product taking it step by step, 
uh, I think that's what we want to do. Uh, of course, you know, further down the line, you know, we're looking into how can we, you know, start creating interoperability with the various other uh, projects out there. Uh, how can we, you know, see what is the kind of global vision uh, for for WeTrade and and how do we actually scale this to be a global platform? But that's way down the line. I think you know what we're really focused on the immediate future right now and just trying to uh, make this thing work uh, and then you kind of trying to iterate on the stuff that works. Making it work, music to my ears. I often hear people say that um, DLT is fantastic, um, but is it going to work in a world uh, where trade finance is all paper-based? I guess with WeTrade, are you creating an alternate universe in which all of the trades are 100% digital um, and and they've kind of never exist in paper? What what's what does that look like, and is that how you've solved that problem? Well, we of course hope that everything will be digitized, but you know we've we've done a lot of work in uh, and other projects as well, and you know I think a lot of the kind of preconditions of this project seems to be that you know the entire world is digitized before you can actually get anything out of the door this is not the case uh, here this is a very simple thing where we create a contractual relationship on the blockchain between the buyer and the seller uh, relying on the kyc infrastructure of both banks uh, so sellers and buyers banks and you know Beyond that, whatever necessary paperwork is necessary, because it is a lot still, uh, it's just it, there. I mean, this is this is the way it uh, you know, has always been, and that's the, it, it's going to slowly move to digital, but that's not going to be a condition for our success. Uh, and uh, and this, uh, this re- reliance on, on full digitalization of complex supply chains, for example, cannot be a precondition uh, as far as we're concerned. But of course, as soon as that happens, we can we can start adding interesting features uh, into our, our chain as well, which is tracking the supply chain, you know, the, including the customs, the logistics companies, uh, the shipping companies, uh, and everything related to the automated supply chain. Uh, so when once that happens, yes, it's going to be fantastic. Whether is that going to stop us from deploying this year? No. Do you see a risk of lots of different people doing lots of different um, supply chain and trade finance projects? Because, I mean, on episode 14, we talked to the guys at Sweetbridge who have some very interesting partners and some very interesting projects. Um, I'm aware that uh, the Hyperledger team have been working with the likes of Walmart. Um, Marisk have been working with some really interesting organizations like Guard Time and EY. Uh, there's just so many initiatives out there. Do you see these things converging or being competitive? in the future well it's too early for competition to simply put i mean you know i think you know everything that's happening in the space is fantastic i mean like i said we've looked into several of these projects and there's a lot of good work doing uh, done by these projects and we really don't see competition at this point i think we're going to start talking about uh, kind of convergence and interoperability down the line but i think you know there's so much space out there uh, for all these projects to exist and learn from each other as well uh, that it's it's just way too early to talk about competition. That's not the way we see it, at least. Cool. All right. Well, Vili, uh, that's all the questions I had. Um, I guess from my perspective, where can people find out more about you, what it is you're doing at Nordea, uh, and uh, what should people be looking out for? Sure. Uh, you can look at insights.nordea.com for all the cool stuff that we're doing in uh, transaction banking. Uh, it includes trade finance, uh, our PSD2 open banking, uh, and of course, our AI work that we're doing. Uh, for personally myself, I'm at Twitter, uh, Ville underscore S, uh, and you can follow me there. I don't tweet that much, but uh, I'm trying to learn. Uh, we'll, we'll get you tweeting and we'll, we'll definitely spam you with all of our 11FS uh accounts in the near future looking forward to it listeners i encourage that Vili, thank you for being with us on blockchain insider thank you very much 
A big thank you to Vili and, of course, my regular co-host, Colin G. Platt. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me again in this country. Uh, we, we keep letting you in. I don't know why. It's too much sass. Um, as well as the amazing production team here at 11FS, we've got Laura Watkins, our producer, um, Michael Bailey, our editor. Ollie's in the room today as well. Ollie's uh, Ollie, in the house. Ollie in the house. And of course, Petrit, our assistant producer. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. I can't tell you how much those reviews help us. Even if you just like the Colin G. Sass or you uh, you want to hear more about a certain thing, let us know what it is. Spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to and we'll have more blockchain insider next week goodbye